This week, Bantan's second Li note holder secure winning bid in auction, at least three note holder groups in Frontier Communications form, and Cedril receives plan confirmation. More on all this and as always, updates from Puerto Rico and Venezuela. Welcome to the Week in Reorg. Hello, and welcome to the Reorg Research Weekly Podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in the news of distressed debt and bankruptcies. I'm Teresa Lee. And I'm Karen Lung, reporting from Reorg's offices in New York City. This week, the Reorg First Aid team will be joining us again to examine trends in bankruptcy filings in the first quarter of 2018. I'll be talking to Jessica Steinhagen and Ian Howland about some of the developments in Chapter 11, including the continuation of the retail apocalypse and the return of energy bankruptcies. We'll also be discussing some of the more controversial names that have filed for bankruptcy this year, including the Weinstein Company, Remington, and First Energy. It's Sunday, April 22nd. Some sense of conclusion was reached in Bontown this week as the debtors chose the winning bid in their long-anticipated auction. Second lien secured note holders in a joint bid with GA Retail and Tiger Capital lodged a winning $775 million bid that includes an up to $575 million cash component, an almost $100 million wind-down budget, and a $125 million credit bid. The week began with the news that only two qualified liquidation bids would go forward, the bid from the second liens and a joint bid from Hilco and Gordon Brothers. Second lien counsel, Jones Day, argued the latter was not a qualified bid. Following a two-day auction process, the debtors chose the second lien bid as the best and highest. And on Wednesday, Judge Mary Walrath approved the bid. Counsel for the UCC stated that it was focused throughout the cases on achieving a going concern bid, but, quote, the market spoke. Debtors counsel Paul Weiss highlighted the additional $30 million added to the wind-down budget, filing good-faith, arm's-length negotiations. On Thursday, Bonton announced going out-of-business sales would begin Friday for the company's 212 stores not already in liquidation. The company said the sales are expected to run for 10 to 12 weeks. This week, Reorg reported that at least three noteholder groups have formed and approached Frontier Communications, seeking to begin dialogue with the company ahead of potential refinancing efforts. Sources said that, among those... A group holding unsecured notes relating to Frontier's acquisition of $10.5 billion of Verizon assets in California, Texas, and Florida approached the company to begin a dialogue about a potential exchange of their 10.5% notes due 2022 and 11% notes due 2025, commonly known as the CTF notes. This group is represented by Aiken Gump and Ducera. Sources noted that, along with the potential for lower interest payments and an extended maturity schedule, by taking out the CTF notes, Frontier would also be taking out more restrictive liens baskets, potentially increasing the company's overall secured debt capacity. This is a possibility that Ruerg Covenants has also written about. However, sources informed Ruerg that Frontier has told investors it is not engaging with that group or considering a refinancing of those bonds at this time. Other groups include one that holds both CTF and legacy bonds, holding $2.2 billion in total debt and represented by PJT and Millbank, 
and another legacy holder group led by Golden Tree and represented by Wilkie Farr. Last month, Frontier completed an exchange, in part targeted at the company's 8.875% notes, due 2020, another CTF note. On Tuesday, Cedril obtained confirmation of its plan of reorganization seven months after filing for Chapter 11. The plan, which includes a global settlement between the debtors, the UCC, an ad hoc bondholder group, Barclays and other major stakeholders, hands the majority of reorganized equity of the offshore drilling contractor to parties injecting slightly more than $1 billion in new capital. The new capital is split between an $880 million secured note with 55% of the reorganized equity detachable from the note on the effective date, and a $200 million direct equity investment for 24% of the new equity. The remaining equity will be split between unsecured claims, existing equity, and HEMIN, the investment vehicle controlled by Chairman John Fredrickson. Pre-petition secured debt is set to receive new amended credit facilities, with maturities extended five years on average and amortizations eliminated until 2019. Emergence from Chapter 11 is expected on July 16th. On the island of Puerto Rico, the Promesa Oversight Board released its own versions of revised fiscal plans for the Commonwealth, PREPA and PRASA. On Thursday, the Oversight Board certified its own versions of the fiscal plans for those three entities, rejecting the plans submitted by the Commonwealth. The revised Commonwealth fiscal plan projects a six-year surplus of $6.7 billion after the implementation of fiscal measures and the impact of certain structural reforms. The plan also contains a pension reform that would save $732 million over that time frame and a labor reform that would make Puerto Rico an at-will employment jurisdiction. However, the administration of Governor Ricardo Rosselló continues to oppose those reforms. Separately, the PRASA plan projects a cumulative financial need of $806 million through fiscal 2023, after the total impact of initiatives which are estimated to be $1.1 billion over six years. And the new PREPA fiscal plan is premised on a transformation of the energy sector, tied to a transaction timeline of at least 18 months. Both the PRASA and PREPA plans also include pension reform measures that are opposed by the Commonwealth. This week, the Oversight Board also released revised draft fiscal plans for the Government Development Bank, COSEC, the University of Puerto Rico, and the Puerto Rico Highway and Transportation Authority. The revised fiscal plans for the GDB and COSEC are largely similar to their March 21st versions. However, the new HTA plan, which was formulated by the Oversight Board, now shows a total $355 million surplus through fiscal 2023 compared to the previous estimate of $33 million. And the new UPR fiscal plan, also formulated by the Oversight Board, includes a $395 million increase in total revenue enhancement and cost reduction measures to fiscal 2023. On Friday, the Oversight Board approved the GDB, UPR, and HTA plans, but postponed a vote on the revised COSEC plan, pending further financial analysis. A group of Pedavesa and Venezuela bondholders have formally organized, and they hired Milstein and Company as a financial advisor ahead of the May 20th presidential election. The press release announcing the group's formation says that the, quote, committee has organized in order to be in a position 
to evaluate statements made by Venezuela and PDVSA with regard to their present situation and financial condition, to facilitate communications among bondholders and other stakeholders. The Institute of International Finance is working with the new committee to, quote, ensure that any eventual restructuring is consistent with principles of stable capital flows and fair debt restructuring, the release notes. Still, a restructuring is probably not imminent. As U.S. Secretary of the Treasury Steven Mnuchin said on Thursday, quote, creditors, whether private or public, that provide new financing to the Maduro regime are lending to a government that lacks legitimacy to borrow in the name of Venezuela. Sanctions would probably prevent creditors from refinancing existing notes with new debt, and it is unclear whether the international community will change its policy regarding sanctions, even if opposition leader Henry Falcone wins the election, because many opposition parties have been excluded. While opposition leader Falcone is the frontrunner in many polls, many observers note that Maduro could manipulate the election process. Furthermore, some analysts find the polls misleading given that it is unlikely that polling results will translate into votes on Election Day if the voter participation rate remains low. Other top red stories of the week were Jones Energy CEO and President terminated effective immediately, newly appointed COO to serve as interim CEO. Number two, Jones Day holds cross-mark lender call to discuss capital structure, company to hold earnings call Thursday. And three, Toys R Us discloses Fairfax Financial Holdings as Toys Canada stocking horse bidder with a Canadian $300 million base purchase price. And now we'll pass it over to Angelo Thalassinos, filling in for Jim Holloway in Houston for a preview of what's to come in the week ahead. Thanks, Karen. Not to worry, Jim will be back next week. But for this week, I'll start with a nugget of wisdom from one of my distant relatives, Socrates. The only true wisdom is knowing you know nothing. To try to close that knowledge gap, here's what we see in the week ahead. The week of April 23rd begins with the trifecta of the Toys R Us debtors' Canadian equity auction, Rex Energy's senior term loan lender forbearance expiration, and First Energy first quarter earnings. Fairfax has been designated the stocking horse bidder for the Toys Canadian equity with a $300 million Canadian base purchase price. A hearing to approve a winning bidder coming out of the auction takes place Tuesday morning. Also Tuesday, another status conference is scheduled related to First Energy's adversary proceeding against FERC, as well as a combined disclosure statement and confirmation hearing for Harvey Gulf. SuperValue on Tuesday is also set to report its fiscal fourth quarter earnings and hold a conference call after the close. An omnibus hearing in Puerto Rico's Tile Three cases is scheduled for Wednesday this week. That hearing will include Judge Laura Taylor Swain's consideration the Cofina agents request to certify certain questions to the Puerto Rico Supreme Court related to the ongoing pledge sales tax dispute. PetSmart also reports fourth quarter earnings on Wednesday. Earnings pick up on Thursday with PetSmart and GNC earnings calls. Claire's will hold its final dip hearing in front of Judge Mary Walrath on Thursday, while Judge Shelley Chapman has scheduled a sixth day of trial in the Cumulus Debtors Confirmation Hearing. In Akron, birthplace of LeBron James, Judge Alan Koscheck will also hold an omnibus hearing in First Energy Solutions Chapter 11 case. As folks likely know, if LeBron didn't go straight to the NBA, he would have attended the Ohio State University. And that brings us to Friday. Tender offers for Comstock Resources First Lean and Convertible Pick Notes are set to expire at midnight. 
In a letter sent the company, Creditor Knighthead voiced its displeasure over the terms, so we anxiously await the results. Also on Friday, EV Energy is back in court for its second day hearing. And the week ends with Toys R Us back in court to seek approval to assign certain ground leases, as well as seek final approval for the additional Taj dip facility. That's all for me, but I would be remiss to not leave you with another nugget of wisdom. This time from the venerable Gordon Gecko. The most valuable commodity I know of is information. Wise words indeed. For more on the week ahead, please see our Ford Weekly published every Monday morning. Thanks, and back to you, Karen. Thanks, Angelo. As always, we'll be on the lookout for those developments in the coming days. Now we'll turn to our deep-dive look at trends and bankruptcies in the first quarter with our own first-day team, and moderated by my co-host this week, Teresa Lee. Thanks. So here with me today from the Ruerg First Day team are Jessica Steinhagen and Ian Howland. Ruerg First Day provides timely alerts and expert analysis of new Chapter 11 filings with liabilities of over $10 million and tracks trends in filings through the First Day database. So Jessica and Ian, we had you on the podcast earlier this year to talk about uh, First Day 2017's annual review. And now you're back to give us some updates about what happened in the first quarter. Thanks, Teresa. It's definitely been busy. In March alone, we have published over 100 first-day stories. Wow, is that number of filings unusual? Yes, definitely. The month of March included the greatest number of monthly Chapter 11 filings in almost two years, going back all the way to May 2016. Q1 this year has also been particularly busy with Chapter 11s reporting over a billion in liabilities, with 12 filed over the three-month period. Uh, for scale, Last quarter, or last Q1, 2017 Q1, had exactly half as many of such cases, and all of 2017 at 23. This year is well on track to surpass even 2016, which was teeming with large energy company filings. Q1 in 2016 had $11 billion bankruptcies, and the year as a whole had 32. And the steam has yet to evaporate as the three more billion dollar bankruptcies have commenced in the six day period following the first quarter, bringing the year's total to 15 in the first week of the second quarter. Wow, interesting. That seems like a lot of activity. Um, So last time you were here, we talked about how retail cases were dominating the space. Jessica, is is that still the case? Retail is still a significant player in this quarter, especially if we include grocery retailers, including supermarket chains such as Tops and Bilo. There have also been several large fashion retailers like Bonton, Claire's, and Nine West, along with smaller chains like Agachi, Backrack, Charlotte Olympia, and also The Walking Company. Um, after Nine West filed on April 9th, they reported um, $1.9 billion in total liabilities. The retail Chapter 11 debt since June 2015 went over $25 billion. But the energy sector has accounted for more of the large filings, including five cases reporting over a billion in liabilities in the first quarter, compared to $4 billion retail filings. So we did discuss that energy bankruptcies were very big a couple of years ago, and uh, it seems like they're back. Ian, is that right? So energy sector cases are down from 2016's oil and gas bankruptcy boom, but the first quarter of 2018 has had more cases with over a billion in liabilities than both 2016 and 2017. In the first quarter of last year, the largest number of energy cases fell within the 100 million to 500 million in liabilities range and the over $1 billion in liabilities range. But in the first quarter of 2016, by far the largest number of cases reported between 10 million and 50 million in liabilities. Some of the large energy companies filing this year point to the lingering effects of the late 2014 drop in oil and gas prices. Even though they have uh, stabilized, they still remain below their peak in 2008, particularly for natural gas prices. 
These companies point to a drop in exploration and drilling projects or insufficient revenue leading to liquidity struggles and an inability to service debt. Not all of the oil companies blame commodity prices, though. Uh, for example, Philadelphia Energy Solutions blamed regulations, increased pipeline capacity, and the unexpected lifting of a domestic crude oil exporting ban. So let's go back to retail for a second. Some of the traditional reasons why retailers are filing include the decline in foot traffic and the high costs of running brick-and-mortar stores. Ian, are these the same patterns that you're seeing in grocery stores? So uh, recent grocers that have filed, like Bilo, blame companies like Amazon, um, which has also plagued the more traditional retail companies. E-commerce has also hit the grocers, but in different ways. Clothing and other retailers generally blame online shopping, and the grocery stores blame food delivery companies and grocery stores that offer online ordering and delivery. Grocery stores have also been harmed by mega retailers and specialty chains that sell food. But in general, the grocery chains say that the food industry is very competitive. They also say that there has been a recent uptick in consumer demand for a gourmet shopping experience, looking for natural, organic, and gluten-free foods. Some of the grocers also point to food deflation. The U.S. Department of Agricultural, the U.S. Department of Agriculture research shows that consumers paid less for grocery items in 2016 than in 2015, and it was the first time that food retail prices did not increase since all the way back to 1967. There are also some chains like Central Grocers and Marsh Supermarkets that couldn't keep up with capital improvements being made by their competitors. Now, a well-known restaurant chain uh, called Bertucci's also filed recently. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Are restaurants suffering from the same issues as grocers? Restaurants generally say to different reasons than the grocers. The restaurants usually blame the large competition from fast casual restaurants. Bertucci's in particular complain that consumers' preferences continue to shift toward cheaper, faster alternatives. Though it may have been a factor, the restaurants have typically not blamed the online meal kit companies for the decline in foot traffic at their stores. Many of last year's restaurant filers noted the same concerns as Bertucci's regarding the casual dining industry as a whole, including Joe's Crab Shack and Romano's Macaroni Grill, which said that consumers want cheaper, faster dining, and younger customers are looking for experience-driven restaurants. Others filed because of lease issues, usually the fast food franchisees. And speaking of consumer-driven sectors, what about healthcare? We saw HCR Manicare as well as a few other healthcare companies file in the first quarter. And Ian, of course, recently discussed on the podcast some of the factors that affect healthcare companies in distress. Can you touch on that a little bit for our listeners? Yeah. Um, March was a really busy month for healthcare cases. Uh, it made up about 25% of all of the cases for the month as compared to just about 8% for all of last year. HCR Manor Care, uh, which was the biggest one to file, um, operates long-term care, hospice, and rehab facilities throughout the country. That one filed as a prepack with votes in before the filing, all of which voted to accept. HCR blamed decreased revenue from its long-term care business because of what it said was a challenging business environment. In general, though, many hospital operators are struggling with rising uninsureds, increased patient bad debt, and decreasing Medicare and Medicaid reimbursements. Most of the hospitals tend to seek to sell their assets or partner with a larger hospital network. So I want to shift gears slightly and touch on some trends in dip financings. Uh, We've discussed before the First Day Database, which tracks trends in the cases that First Day covers. What does the First Day Database show on dip financings for the billion-dollar bankruptcies of the retailers in the first quarter of the year? All three of the largest retailers, Nine West, Claire's, and Bonton, requested dips of at least $100 million, with Bonton's the biggest at $725 million. And are we seeing the same kind of trends for billion-dollar energy cases? 
of the oil and gas debtors reporting at least $1 billion in liabilities this past quarter, it was about evenly split, with three debtors seeking dip financing and two not. The ones with financing lined up were Exco, Philadelphia Energy Solutions, and Fieldwood Energy. The dips range from a low of $60 million to about $250 million. The two companies that did not request financing were Harvey Gulf and Ascent Resources Marcellus Holdings, but each of these had significant amount of cash on hand. Harvey Gulf had $78 million and Ascent had $96 million in cash when they filed. So oil and gas uh, may not be a household. These companies may not be household names, but let's touch on some of the more interesting and uh, perhaps more well-known names that have filed for bankruptcy. One of them was the Weinstein Company, which filed for bankruptcy after accusations of sexual misconduct by its founder, Harvey Weinstein. Can you tell us a little bit about what's going on there? Yeah, so Weinstein's bankruptcy was highly publicized because of the prior accusations against Harvey Weinstein. Before the filing, the company tried to sell itself and had an acquisition lined up with an investor group that included Ron Burkle, but they ended up walking away because of what they said was new information about the company's finances. The negative publicity also caused a bunch of their businesses to, or a bunch of their business partners to cut ties with Weinstein, including Amazon, Apple, and Netflix. Right. So definitely a lot of fallout there. What happened after the company filed for bankruptcy? The latest news in the bankruptcy case is that the debtors' bid procedures were approved earlier this month to proceed with the sale process. Weinstein lined up an affiliate of Lantern Capital as stocking horse with a $310 million cash bid and assumption of certain liabilities by excluding sexual harassment claims against Harvey Weinstein. The approved timeline provides for an April 30 bid deadline, May 4th auction, and May 8th sale hearing. The procedures were also modified because of some objections by the Unsecured Creditors Committee, including regarding value allocating the bid. The committee got some of their asks, um, and the court ruled that they could ask for more time for the sale if they can show the pre-bankruptcy marketing was not sufficient or the current timeline is not enough. So another controversial and topical name that has filed is firearm manufacturer Remington, which filed Chapter 11 at the end of the quarter. Remington described, quote, market volatility as one of the reasons for their bankruptcy filing. Jessica, can you tell us a little bit about what that means? Sure. So Remington filed amid the renewed national conversation about guns after the recent shooting at the Parkland High School. Remington's bankruptcy was long awaited because they entered into a restructuring support agreement back in February and didn't file until the end of March. After several amendments to the RSA, they filed to implement a balance sheet restructuring. Remington also secured a large dip financing package of $338 million, and it said in its court filing that it was the best package they could find given the current political and credit climate as to firearms and ammunition manufacturers. Um, the case was filed as a prepack to allow for a smoother ride through Chapter 11, perhaps in part because of this climate, and they expect to emerge from bankruptcy within two months of when they filed. Okay, so finally, let's talk a, li- a little bit about First Energy, which is definitely not a prepack. Now, this case is among the more active and hotly watched cases in the distressed space, with its Chapter 11 filings coming just three days after First Energy notified PJM Interconnection the uh, regional transmission organization, that the company would deactivate or sell its three nuclear power plants during the next three years. First Energy also recently called on U.S. Energy Secretary Rick Perry to issue an emergency order directing PJM to, quote, immediately begin negotiations to secure the long-term capacity of certain nuclear and coal-fired plants in the region, and to compensate their owners for the full benefits they provide to energy markets 
and the public at large, including fuel security and diversity, end quote. What's going on with this company and why is it important for some of the other cases that we're seeing? So First Energy is important for the merchant power space because that issue in the case is First Energy's request for assistance under the Federal Power Act to protect faltering coal and nuclear power generation facilities. Other types of regulations, uh, including zero emissions credits for nuclear generators, have been a divisive issue among the large merchant power players. Right, and these zero emissions credits have been extremely heavily litigated, right? Can you tell us what the issue there is? Right. Companies like Dinergy and NRG, Energy often oppose the nuclear subsidies, while companies including Exelon and First Energy support these credits. The credits are important because they can yield hundreds of millions of dollars in incremental annual revenue for nuclear generators that are struggling. The Second Court of Appeals, Second Circuit Court of Appeals, rather, recently took under advisement an appeal from a ruling upholding the constitutionality of New York's Clean Energy Standard Program, which is designed to reduce greenhouse gas emissions through zero emissions credits. The lower court ruling came after an Illinois federal court dismissed two separate lawsuits commenced by power producers and consumers challenging a similar program in Illinois. These companies have also been dealing with shifts in the market for merchant power generation, including cheaper natural gas and the proliferation of renewable energy. And merchant power is definitely a sector that we'll be watching closely here at Reorg. So thanks, Jessica and Ian, for that update on the restructuring and distressed space. We look forward to keeping an eye on the trends in 2018 with Rework First Day. Thank you to all of our listeners, and make sure to tune in next time. That's all for this week. As a reminder, you can access all Reorg Research podcasts on our media page, or if you're not a subscriber, you can access them on iTunes and SoundCloud. I'm Karen Lung, and this has been The Week in Reorg.